Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, how are you, my friend? How's everything going for my my good buddy, Stanislav? <laughs> it's great. It's a hot one over here, I'll tell you that. It really is. I just ordered uh, two air filters for my entire house, two air cleaners, because uh, we have the, you know, what, you know what the forecast is? It's like these three wavy lines. That's all what the forecast is, three wavy lines of smoke. I didn't know that was a forecast, smoke. It's because of the Dixie fires? It's because like these California fires, and they're just, you know, waving all over the nation because our country is burning. Paul, I hope, hope, hope everyone's good out there. Right. If any of our listeners are in California and are impacted by the Dixie fires, we hope you're okay. Also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harbarger. What did you order today? Uh, ordered my children around a lot. <laughs> Sweet. Ordered some new car seats. Working on cost to close estimate sheets. I got all kinds of things going on over here with that, but nobody cares. It's time for us to have a great top tier patron request episode, right, Stan? Oh, yeah. It's that time again. Patron request episode. It's our version of a dono deck where our biggest supporters can work with us to generate an episode topic every six months or so. And this week, Sean D. wanted us to cover the Stoneblade decks in Modern that are in the format right now. Try to figure out how they try to win, how these decks are actually different, and how well are they even positioned in today's metagame. And do they all even have blades in them? Do they? We'll see. Stone stone equipment. That's not quite as good. They have stones. Stone equipment. Stone living weapons. And this week, we're going to revisit one of the most beloved, debated, and powerful cards in modern, Stoneforge Mystic. We're also going to revisit Stoneforge's history in modern, then deep dive into three different Blade-style decks that have been showing up in the format in leagues and tournaments lately. So thanks again, Sean D., for your generous support, your loyal patronage, and really thanks to everyone who makes the show possible. Also, as an aperitif... We're going to go through a couple of modern challenges from this weekend and also do what everybody loves, housekeeping. Now, this housekeeping, this is a banger housekeeping. <laughs> if you right? usually skip housekeeping, don't skip this housekeeping. We have a lot of houses to keep. We have a lot of things to tell you right now, everybody. Okay, I'll go first. I have, go a, first, I have an important please. announcement. Okay. I have to... So, it's good news and bad news. The bad news is I have to take two to three weeks off from the dive down stan please please don't come back in three weeks okay well we're gonna talk about this stan is gonna take some time off from the dive down not a very long time but please take more than three weeks now tell him why determined amount of time the good news is it's because my wife and i are having a baby yeah my my lady we're just finding out (laughs) not really yeah i told my co-host right before we recorded yeah i'm still in shock yeah so jaw agape we've been pregnant since november we're giving birth this week and we could not be more excited i'm going on paternity leave from work and from my hobby which is the dive down i will not be taking 12 weeks off of the dive down which is what my job job gave me oh that's great i know that's amazing yeah so that's gonna happen you're not gonna hear from me for a little while with one caveat Next week, we have a bonus episode that's recorded. It's in the bag. It's me and a beloved modern deck builder, player, person you're going to want to hear from. So you will hear me next week, but no Shane or Dave in the bonus. 
And we're not even going to have an episode next week. Everyone needs a week off. Yeah, I'm going to be backpacking. Didn't make sense to try to prepare and schedule around that. Dave is living an extremely unstable lifestyle still right now. That will be resolved in a couple of weeks. But it just seemed like a good time for us to take a week off on the 15th here. Then the week after that, because Stan, of course, will still be opportunity leave. Dave is finalizing his moving stuff. I will be doing almost certainly uh, an episode with two special guests. You will know who they are. Uh, and it's going to be a fun one, I think. So it'll be probably the first crossover ep. That's all I'm going to say. And then we'll uh, we'll take it from there. But prepare for something fun in two weeks and nothing next week. Well, you'll have something next week. There will be oh, yeah. dive well, down content, but it will be one of our free bonus episodes. Oh, and we'll no, we're going to charge accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just so just everybody understands, this episode is probably going to come out on Wednesday the 11th, the one that we're talking about right now. The one that there will be no regular episode will be Wednesday the 18th. And then Wednesday the 25th is the one that Stan and I will not be on, but Shane will be on with guests. And then we'll see where it goes from there. Right. Because from there, it's, you know, it's Wednesday, August 25th, which we all know is like everyone's favorite day to play Magic. Beyond that, it's Wednesday, September 1st, which is an average day. But before we go through all the Wednesdays left in the year, let's talk about some new patrons who joined the Dive Down Nation. Yeah, my favorite part of the whole episode. Big thanks to Dylan F., Alex L., Josh, and Andrew C. for joining the Dive Down Nation. Also, shout out to Cloudy and John S. for going up a tier in their patronage. Right on. And some, some gratuity to a few new reviews we received via Apple, NK Malakal, Z Ryle. I wonder who that could be. <laughs> I think it's Zach Ryle. Might okay, be. Mana Symbol. Oh, Mana Symbol. Awesome. And, and Sam E92. Yeah, thanks for all the reviews. We appreciate it. We read every one. Good reviews. We love good reviews. Well-written and well-researched reviews. I'm still doing um, research. Still doing on, research. On them. Uh, uh, look, hey, I, I also want to apologize right now to anybody watching the live screen, stream. And uh, I'm in a room with an unruly puppy. And if there's noise <laughs> oh, no. this episode, I'm really sorry about that. I already get up once to like take some something he wasn't supposed to eat out of his mouth. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Classic. So, as Stan mentioned, we have some new patrons, uh, some increased tier patrons. We love seeing all these new faces in the nation. Uh, the transition to Discord seems like it's going really well. We've got citizens streaming Arena and Magic Online in our streaming channels. That's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's just it's really cool to be able to just like click share screen and just jump in a room with people, uh, giving you feedback and just having fun watching people play Magic. There. It's it's going it's going well. I think the transition was successful. Thanks again to Lou and the rest of the IT team for making that so easy and so smooth. Uh, and we really appreciate all the the new patrons and people going up it here. And if you want to join the Dive Down Nation uh, experience, what I think is the best place to talk about magic online, go to Patreon.com/slash The Dive Down. As little as a buck a week gets you uh, access to the definitively discreet dive down discord <laughs> and also uh going up from there gets you some sweet swag people have been posting their photos of it arriving makes me really happy to see the envelopes getting to people so uh thanks again yeah and if you'd like to support the dive down while playing magic online specifically uh check out manatraders.com 
where we rent uh, all, rented all the decks that we played this week for our deck dive on Stoneforge Mystic, as we mentioned. Uh, if you want to check them out, it's manatraders.com. And if you sign up using the promo code THEDIVEDOWN2021, you will get 15% off of your first two months of Magic Rental Cards, manatraders.com. All right, Shane, don't go too far because I believe you are oh, on the news desk this week. It's a big Shane episode I, this week. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be talking so much. We got we, got we have some BSC on today's show. <laughs> Man, modern challenges. How do I love the quite a bit because they offer an ongoing look into the impressively dynamic post Modern Horizons 2 meta game. Uh, thanks again to the ever present Bamzing for the work in getting us these top eight lists and top thirty two breakdowns, often before Watsy even gives us the data through crowdsourcing top eights, like as soon as the challenge is done. I don't know really how they do it. They must just have all the Twitter connections. So let's talk about Saturday. I think Saturday's challenge is really interesting because it showed us again that modern is both diverse and uh, I guess diverse both in power and in strategies. Like no deck seems to have the ability to stay on top of the meta permanently. It seems like, right? Like last weekend, the four and five color element- elementals decks looked like they were kind of going over the top of everybody else. There was three copies and one top eight alone. But this Saturday, single copy of elementals in the top 32. <laughs> and in fact, the top 32 had 25 different decks. No, really? That That is surprising. Yeah, I mean, 25 different decks with a little bit of overlap in strategy. The only decks that showed up more than once were Teamer Footfalls, had three. Hammer and Eldrazi Tron had two. And I guess if you like, you know, like I said, if you want to get really sticky about it, there's a four color Footfalls in there. There's a red white Hammer. But there's a lot of one ofs of new and old strategies. Like we have things like Dredge and Is It Murktide and Mardu, Dragon's Raid Channeler, uh, four color Shadow, Yawgmouth, four color Control. Ponza, Amulet Titan, Food Shells, Glimpse of Tomorrow, all the stuff that you love to see, or maybe don't love to see. I, I also want to make a quick note that one of the the list of the most played cards on Goldfish for this tournament, Endurance, was number three. Wow. What? 34 copies played in the top 32 alone, more than everything except for Lightning Bolt and Mishra's Bauble. So our new tier zero elemental creature, Endurance, says, hello, I'm here. So what you're saying is two months ago, the number one played creature in modern was Monastery Swift Spear. And now yep. it's a pitch card that removes your opponent's graveyard. Okay. It can remove your graveyard. Oh, yeah, if you want. Sure. And blocks Dragon's Rage Channeler nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's talk about this top eight. We had uh, Starfall on Mono White Hammer. The only weird inclusion here or change at all was that they ran 23 lands, which is a dedication to consistency and mana base over the 22 or usually even 21 that you more often see. I think that's smart. It's it's a deck that you want to hit your land. You want to have your land access to land and Urza Saga pops and goes away and is no longer land. So uh, that's a strong, strong mana base there. 23 lands. Second place, Tarmogoyf1234 on Is It Merktide? Stock. Jade KV on Teamer Footfalls, basically stock. So there is some, there, there is a little bit of iteration Ooh, in this yeah, Teamer deck. Yeah, give me, some, give me some iterations, Dan. This, I think, was first pioneered by Doomwake, and they started playing Prismari Command and oh, Main yeah. Deck Fury instead of Crypto Command, basically. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the idea is you have Prismari Command, which is a card that you can pitch to your Furies um, or to your Forces of Negation. And then Fury gives you some additional removal that can also be a threat if you know you want to be crazy and side out all of your Crashing Footfalls and your Cascade cards, which we do not yeah, condone. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, just wanted to call that out. Prismari Command seems interesting. Prismari Command turning out to be way better than we thought it was going to be, right? Like, I dismissed it as a bad Coligan's Command at one point in time, but it turns out that red-blue is just super good in lots of different ways in modern, and uh, I'm sure the uh, Is It Charm mode comes in handy occasionally, so uh, maybe it is good. It's also nice just to have multicolor pitch, right? Like, it pitches to Fury, it pitches to... This deck's still running um, Subtlety sometimes, or no, Stan? This one has one in the board. Yeah. 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 I think it's also nice to have an on-plan main deck answer that can occasionally tag chalice or ee which people on which people are bringing in yeah or ee on yeah. zero or chalice on zero are both pretty yeah. pretty bad against your are pretty good and strong against your rhinos all right up next fourth place klein seven little seven on dredge <laughs> yes dredge again with the burning inquiry variant oh, that we've seen pop up before so yeah play dredge just do it who cares about endurance not me i've got burning inquiry Fifth place via Bleach on Glimpse of Tomorrow combo. Uh, I feel like this deck is probably underrated. It's 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 a good deck. I mean, I'm sure there's there's certain pieces of hate that can stop what it's trying to do, but it can get online really quickly and mess with people's game plans and does some good stuff. I think people are iterating on this and learning the the right way to build it, the right cards to include. I think it's a cool. It's a staying. It's staying around. Yeah, the payoffs for Glimpse of Tomorrow have changed up a little bit. Now it's playing Chancellor yeah. of the Forge, Goblin Dark Dwellers, Omnath, um, even Tiles Provisioner to help create permanence that you then flip with your Glimpse. Yeah, Chancellor of the Forge. That's the card that like gives you a token if you reveal it pregame, right? right. That's like a pregame action. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So that gives you another piece, another pr- piece of uh, cardboard to mess with Glimpse of Tomorrow. For sure. And then it becomes a 5-5. Though, yeah, sounds good to me. The early versions of this deck, like all the payoffs were Eldrazi. So now we're, we're not playing Eldrazi anymore. Now we're just playing value creatures and Omnaths and Dark Dwellers. All right. Next up, uh, sixth place, Uriel on Mardu Luris. I don't know. What, what is it about this deck? It just speaks to me. It's that I 5-0'd with something close to this. Yeah. I mean, I know this is like a grindy you know, value deck getting every piece of value you can out of every card. But, and I know I won't be good at that. And I know that I'm going to go to time at the LGS, but I, I want to play this deck. I think this deck's good. I think this is a well positioned evolution of the red black deck because it's able to pack a uh, better main deck graveyard hate and Kaya's guile. And then main three, deck, three guys go. Yeah. People, people are liking it. And then also it gets to play with charismatic ending to get rid of those really, uh, problematic things that red black can't deal with otherwise. So I think prismatics, I think this is a good version of what was essentially red black channeler before. Dave, what do you think about no unholy heat in the 75? That's surprising to me, but maybe it's a bit of a meta play right now. Cause if they're not trying to kill Titan, then I guess that it's kind of okay. I was trying I was looking at this list, just not trying to figure out what card was missing. And yeah, that's what you've got. Kai's guile instead of unholy heat, basically. Yeah, loading up on you know, th- oh, it's like three K com, three Kai's guile. It's it's pretty in on the more expensive modal spells, which is the kind of thing that scares me because I'm like, uh, how do I get value out of these very expensive spells? But they do get the job done. Seventh place, MJ O two O two on Teamer Footfalls. Eighth place, Kieran on Jun Food. 
which I don't think I've seen this exact build yet, but it is essentially what appears to be a blend of, surprisingly, by the name, Jund and Asmo Food Decks. It's got four Ragavan, four Tarmogoyf, getting you that early aggression. Uh, bolt is Bolt. Uh, but it also has three Ren and Six and two Grist, which can you know do what those cards do. They get the ongoing value. They make you hit your lands. They provide removal options, both in Ren and Six with the the minus and grist with the also the minus you know hitting a creature that you can get back from the graveyard all that kind of stuff and then the asthma package of course just stops all those opposing creature strategies cold so i kind of lo- love the look of this deck i don't know how it plays out but sweet cool evolution cool variant yeah don't forget that this deck has four urza saga in it as well to so it's still an urza right. saga deck in there with the jundiness and also, the only targets for the search on Urza Saga are Shadow Spear and Underworld Cookbook. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Main deck. Anyway. Sounds like you're making constructs. Yeah, it sounds sounds like that's what you're doing. Shadow Spear is not bad on a construct. Give it give it some uh, some trample. Oh yeah, that's the best thing. I love it. So we got seven different decks with what I would call seven different strategies. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. Well, aren't there two Cascade decks? Oh right, because and you said seven. Yeah, not eight, Stan. <laughs> not eight. Thoughts on Saturday, y'all? Like, does this give you hope? Does this make you anxious about anything? Does it make you anxious to play something that's weak to endurance? I'm anxious, but not because of magic. <laughs> <laughs> if you skip the, if you skipped housekeeping, go back and listen to why Stan's anxious. I don't know. I mean, it looks fine to me. It looks like the meta game that we've been seeing lately. It's got you got your hammer, you got your DRC deck, you got your Cascadey decks. Um, so there's nothing too surprising here, but these are, these are good decks. And I think it's still like a fun, fun looking metagame. So as is now typical, our Sunday recording means we're relying on our secret breakdown informant Bamzing for this crowdsource top eight. And we don't have the top 32 to look at at all, but let's go through this top eight. We don't even have deck lists, right? We just, no, we don't have deck lists. We just know unfortunately. Which is kind of sad because I really want to see what some of these decks are doing. First place, Living End. Uh, Volkswagen brought that. Second place, Suicidal Eidolon on Mono Green Tron. Uh. (laughs) Third place, Tunico Berno on Hammer. Fourth place, Sodek with Living End. Fifth place, Alejandro MF Dez on Teamer Footfalls. This is also a mix of Magic Online names and Twitter handles Mm -hmm. because Bamzing always shouts people out on their Twitter handle. So bear with me. Uh, so that was Teamer Footfalls, fifth place. Sixth place, Orizov Grief. Uh, CEL was on that. We don't know if that's a Blade-style deck, if that's just kind of a disruptive mid-range deck. We'll find out soon. Seventh place, Audio 336 on Mono Green Tron. And eighth place, Antodelo on Mono Green Tron. Oh, whoa. Okay. <laughs> Hold on, Shane. I think you misread something because you just listed off three Mono Green Tron decks. Did I copy and paste something incorrectly? Did you copy and I paste a, a challenge result from 2018, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, so what is this? We've got three Green Tron in the top eight alone, unless Bamzing is lying to me. Uh, I really wish we had deck lists because I am very curious what tech that I brought in here, if any, if it's just the stone normal version from past three years if it's bringing in some new tech uh we'll find out uh later on tonight or tomorrow i hope i can't tell you i'm pretty sure that i played against a mono green tron deck the other the other night that had urza saga in it i definitely played so i i did a league the other night and i played against green tron blue tron 
and Eldrazitron <laughs> within the constraints of that league and Titan. So I played against four big mana decks. Oh my god! Uh, ask me more about that later. But the Hope you were um, running Blood Moon. Uh, I, I was playing black white, so no. But anyway, I don't know. It seems like people have been thinking that these Tron decks are popular. I know Eldrazi Tron has been getting kind of popular um, because of Chalice. So I'm not too surprised that there's a bunch of it around. But, you know, the Sunday challengers are sometimes weird. Yeah. You know, I actually think one of the things that helps Tron, and this is super narrow, but the Karn package being able to grab Sundering Titan, or if they're even playing Sundering Titan main, I feel like Sundering Titan in particular is great right now. And... If you notice, like not a lot of the decks that we've been talking about in the top eights today are running main deck Blood Moons. Cascade is the only one that like occasionally has sideboard Blood Moons. So I wonder if Tron is able to just dodge land hate in general and then also punish a ton of these greedy other color-heavy decks using Sundering Titans. I know that's just something that I had to deal with in my league against Tron too. It just it just blows my mind though, like in a world of prismatic endings and force of vigors, killing off expedition maps, killing off chromatic spheres and stars, but like that's what Tron really needs to get its early game combo going. Uh maybe it just dodged it, maybe it just is shoring up that matchup in other ways. Uh some days Tron just wins. I also think we were just talking about how Endurance was the second most played creature. Makes mm. me think that tons and tons of people are loading up on Graveyard Hate, and maybe they're shaving, or like Stan said, not playing decks that have reasonable play against Tron and then also have Land Hate like Blood Moon. So there might be just a tilting of the metagame going on a little bit there. Yeah, Endurance is a card that Tron just does not care about. Like, okay, <clears throat> it's a 3-4 reach. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> uh, one thing that we saw last week, I think, when that green Tron deck that showed up, it had like few Warping Whales main, and I'm wondering if that's still sticking around, because uh, Warping Whales, a one on a colorless instant, lets you choose one. It's like a modal spell that you can exile a target creature with power or toughness one or less. So that tags a lot of things, like Dragon's Rage Channeler before it's delirious. It can get a monkey. Uh, also, another mode is Counter Target Sorcery Spell which can take care of a lot of the Cascade shenanigans that are going around uh, because most of those are sorceries. Uh, and then the third mode is, if, you know, make a Eldrazi Scion that can ramp you, but that's probably not as frequently used, I imagine. I definitely had this this card brought in against me in the Tron matchups that I was playing, uh, and they were taking things like my Stoneforge Mystic, they were taking uh, my Ingenious Smith, they were killing all kinds of different things. Yeah. Esper Sentinel was a big target for it too, but of course. So we had you know three green trons and then three cascade strategies, like I just mentioned, two copies of Living End and a team of Footfalls in the mix on the top eight. So after that, pretty interesting and diverse top eight for Saturday. Sunday is a bit more worrying, perhaps, but you know it's just one event in a series of events, and I'm curious to see how people respond to this. If Green Tron shows up three in a top eight, people are definitely going to pay attention and react to that. Shane, a few days ago, you asked me if I think that Teamer Footfalls is actually a good deck. Yeah. And I said, yes. Where did that question come from? And I'm curious to hear what you think of it, because it has been this pretty consistent mainstay sure. in all these top eights we're talking about. Are you having doubts on about the power level of Footfalls? Well, it's just as like the critical mass of 
all of these cascade strategies continues to exist in the meta and people are bringing in things like void mirrors chalice is still ever present in all sorts of decks it's just surprising to me that these decks continue to have the ability to fight through uh, the hate cards as they keep showing up in people's sideboards and sometimes even main decks and it's just one of those things where it's like the the efficiency of the format is so strong early that I'm consistently surprised that Teamer Cascade doesn't feel like it's on the back foot. But I, I do know that that gets made up for pretty quickly when you're casting 8-8 eight, eight power of and toughness of uh, you know rhinos out there. Right, right. Cool. Yeah, I was, I was hoping for some cool decks ink fodder, but the top 32 of Strat- Saturday was basically all established archetypes. And even going back into the prelims of the last week, wasn't that interesting? There was a spicy return of uh, Bogles in one of those, but honestly, nothing weird, nothing cool. I mean, I'm just—it's cool that there's so many decks, but no one's bringing anything super spicy lately. All right, well, thanks for for putting together and doing the doing the work on top of Bamzing's work to put together a little breakdown for everybody. Two events—it's another weekend of Modern where it feels like you know we're still we're still playing in Modern Horizon 2's world, but it's not so bad there, I think. Yeah, what I'm happy about is the, is the churn, is the cycling at what's winning, the cycling of what's at the top, the fact that decks do not maintain dominance week over week. I mean, we do, of course, see Hammer keeping showing up, but it's not like it's seven out of the top 32. We're still seeing Is It Murktide show up, but it's like a one of or a two of. There's all these decks that have a place in the format and can win you know, any given weekend type stuff, but it's... That's what makes me happy is that the balance of power and the ability for decks to fight each other seems like it's there. Nice. All right. Well, next up, we're going to hop over to our top tier patron suggested episode for Sean D, where we're going to revisit Stoneforge Mystic in Modern in some decks this week, uh, as Shane Shane talked about. But we're going to talk about a bunch of the different shells that it appears in. Stay with us. Okay, and we're back. And as we mentioned in the intro to this episode, this week's episode is a patron request from one of our top-tier citizens of the nation, Sean D. Thanks again, Sean, for the ongoing support. Thanks again to all of our awesome citizens of the Dive Down Nation. You know, it's it's been nearly two years with Stoneforge Mystic in the format. I can't believe that. It's so surprising. Two years. It seems both longer and shorter. We've been doing this show for for more than two years. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, my God. Dave, over two and a half years. Oh, goodness. Okay. So we thought not only was it a great episode idea that Sean, you know, Sean seems like they have a lot of passion for the Stoneblade archetypes. It also made sense to celebrate her anniversary with this request app. So what Sean wanted us to do was look at the Stoneblade decks in Modern. And in my opinion, that necessitates, necessitates my friends looking back on Stoneforge Mystic's past in Modern and her journey to her current status in the format. And if you're a true dive down head, you might remember our episode focused on Stoneforge around the time of her unbanning in episode 39, which as I mentioned was nearly two years ago at this point. A lot has changed since then and 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 has Stoneforge's place in the meta game. So let's begin by briefly revisiting her path into and through the modern format. Oh wait, I have a question before we do this. Please. Which one of us has the most experience playing Stoneforge Mystic, do we think? Probably Stan. Definitely Stan. 
Probably Stan. I, I would bet on Stan. Stan, bottom yeah. line, before we always get into- Always bet on Stan. Be, exactly. Always bet on Stan. Before we get into this history, Stan, yeah. have you enjoyed having Stoneforge Mystic as an option to play over the last couple of years? Just, is it a fun card for you? A hundred percent. There was that one time where I was like, Stoneforge, one of my favorite cards in Modern, and you guys were like, what? Since when? Yeah. And I was <laughs> like, literally since it was on band. It, it's Goyf. It's Goyf. What? <laughs> that's, that's my favorite thing to say about two-drop creatures. It's Goyf. It's it's part of the two drop cycle. Do you know the two drop cycle story? No. The like mystical, like potentially never finished cycle of a generic and a colored mana cards that are all supposed to be awesome. There's Snapcaster Mage, Tarmogoyf, Stoneforge Mystic, Young Pyromancer, and Bob, I think is what generally people Mm. say the five cards are. But everybody's always got a thought on what the other ones are. You know what I mean? Where they're like, oh, I think that the red one is not Young Pyromancer. It's really this. Or I think the white one is not Stoneforge Mm. Mystic. It's really this. It's pretty, it's kind of, it's one of those like recurring things. Anyway, let's get into that history. It's really Leon and Arbiter. Yeah, it's Leon and Arbiter. All right. So Stoneforge was printed in World Wake in 2010 and quickly found herself into a standard strategy called Cawblade that was so powerful that she was banned out of the format. And at the time, that was kind of novel. Unlike today, where it's kind of expected. That was one of the first bannings in like six or seven years at the time that that happened, believe it or not. And the funniest thing about that, which she's told this story a couple times, is that there was a pre-release deck that had Stoneforge Mystic in it. And if you did not alter the pre-release deck after the banning, you could play Stoneforge Mystic, but only if you just used the event deck. Yeah, they didn't want people to feel like they paid something for nothing. Right. Pretty funny. All right. So, I mean... I imagine you know what Stoneforge Mystic does. I can't imagine you don't, but it's it is a Stoneforge Mystic episode. One in a white creature core artificer. One two. When she ETBs, you can search your library for an equipment card, reveal it, put it into your hand, and then shuffle. One in a white tap. You may put an equipment card from your hand onto the battlefield. So Modern was created around the time of Stoneforge's dominance in mid 2011, and Watsi was so hesitant to have the strategy infiltrate their new format that they just pre-banned Stoneforge Mystic entirely with the rest of the pre-banned cards. And so for eight years, she, she just sat on the shelf biding her time. People had plenty of discussions about whether or not she was safe to unban as the you know, Modern kept going. She was still there. Every time there was an unban scheduled, her price would shoot up. She wouldn't get unbanned. It would go back down, repeat, repeat, until one time somebody, everybody won. Stoneforge was unbanned on August 26, 2019. People got their wish. Uh, its unbanning was announced at the same time looting and Hogak were simultaneously banned. The argument at the time from Watsi is that enough time had passed in Modern where Stoneforge could be at an appropriate power level. So it took eight years for Wizards to think that Stoneforge was now at a the Modern's power level for what the rest of the format was doing. So that means all you twin heads that... <laughs> Twin's going to be unbanned in three years by the same by the same clock. Just, <laughs> hold on, just hold keep on, that in mind. Has Twin been banned five years? It's been, twi- it's been banned since 2016, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Also, I'm making That's... a joke, but... <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, we'll see. And you know, they were also clearly, or fairly clearly, wanting to bring the format back to the battlefield, or at least in a fair way, by when they you know, get rid of looting, get rid of Hogak take the graveyard strategies out of the equation and maybe try to play a little bit more fair. And Stoneforge had previously excelled in a fair strategy, right? And it made sense to give players this formerly powerful tool to make those styles of decks 
have a reason to exist, give them something to, to really center their builds on. And of course, people flocked to these decks featuring Stoneforge Mystic. I remember like the early deck dumps with Stoneforge Unbanned had like dozens of decks with Stoneforge in it, right? Like I remember in our early Stoneforge episode that I referenced a little bit ago, we tested five different decks alone in that episode. There was like Azorius Control with her controlling the battlefield. There was Azorius Taxes. There was a Bant like Stone Flash style deck. There was that Selesnia Eldrazi deck featuring Stoneforge. There was a Jeskai Tempo Blade strategy that's kind of existed uh, in some way, shape or form since then. I'd also love to see us try to cover five different decks in the episode right now. <laughs> it would be like three hours long. Well, we did a hundred decks in like two and a half. Well, we can't do point. it without the bell. <laughs> and the bell is in a box somewhere in storage right now. So we, we can't, oh, we can't no. even try. And so you can kind of see what Stoneforge did after that by looking at her price history. From, an, from this early peak of like 80 bucks, over the next five months, she has trickled straight back down into like 40 bucks. Where she stayed, uh, she even dropped a little bit after she got reprinted in Double Masters. And I want to get your perspective on this, guys. But the the issue with Stoneforge, I think, ultimately, was that she was very fair. In a, in a modern format that got increasingly more powerful, both fairly and unfairly, around her. And the swords that came along for the ride uh, with her. Like, modern was dominated by things like Earl Piles and Heliod Combo and Death Shadow... And, of course, Burn was always there, threatening to remove Stoneforge as soon as she was cast. It's just challenging to see, to me at least, I guess, how Stoneforge was, was offering the strength needed to succeed in Modern uh, after she was unbanned. Am I remembering this incorrectly? Like, do you think she was kind of, was better than I'm, I'm giving her credit for? You know, I never felt like Stoneforge was a Tier 1 and Power Level deck for very extended periods of time. Like, obviously, she won... She was in winning modern decks and would top eight, not infrequently, but it would come in these ebbs and flows. Toward the beginning, I think people were really jazzed to play her that so many good players were playing her that inevitably she appeared in winning deck lists. But nowadays, it kind of almost feels like a sweet treat when we see Stoneforge in a winning deck. It's like, how'd you do it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but more on that later. Well, I mean, wait, 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 wait. So it's, it's in Hammer. So it's in a winning deck all the time right now. Oh. It's not well, quite the I same I wanna, thing. I want to, yeah, I want to talk about how Stoneforge is being used in modern towards the end of the episode. But like, what about what about her as like in like what she was ostensibly good at being in a blade deck? I mean, those decks were reasonably popular back. I would say, I mean, honestly, just before the pandemic, right? Like, I remember seeing a good amount of kind of blue white Stoneforgey decks floating around towards the end of. 2019 beginning of 2020 but like stan said they were never never like dominant and it was always clear that they were fair i mean the one thing that was interesting about the should we unban it should we not unban it discussion is that that old chestnut that comes back where they're all where people say well either it's going to be bad or it's going to be way too good and <laughs> yeah you know and some I, of the best players in the world said that yeah and i kind of like at the time i felt like that was kind of logical but now you look at stoneforge mystic and you just go this card is just fine and some people love it and that's cool for them i wonder if it's always a fair card because it goes into just control decks more often than not you know hammer almost feels like an exception and i think it says a lot that it doesn't have that stone forge namesake like so many other blade decks do because nowadays 
more often than not, with the exception of Hammer, Stoneforge is just the threat that you put into your control deck as a way to like actually finish that doesn't rely on Celestial Colonnade or Creeping Tar Pit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of one way to use it. Most of the decks that we looked at this week, I wouldn't really call control decks. At least the deck that I played, I don't think, was a control deck, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. I don't think the deck that Shane played was really a control deck. Certainly no. the one that you were on was uh, Stan, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dave, I think the the big reason for that, and I think the reason that people seem to have a renewed interest in Stoneforge outside of Hammer as like the equipment tutor there, is Calder Complete got printed in Modern Horizons 2, Mm -hmm. uh, and people were like, oh, hey, we have a new powerful living weapon. It's a new one-two punch with our ever-reliable Batter Skull. Uh, There's, of course, other interesting equipment options in Modern Horizons 2 that might be sneaky uh, long-term surprises. I think Dave's going to talk about a deck featuring one of those as well. Guess what? It's Nettle Cyst that Shane oh, is talking about. Spoiled. Just spoilers. Just so we don't uh, talk around it. But uh, yeah, I think th- those are... I do think that that's one of the main reasons that people looked at it as far as trying a whole bunch of different shells for the card. Because Living Weapon is a powerful mechanic, you know? And Batter Skull was really the only one that was super constructed playable. And now there's a couple more that really are constructed playable as well. For sure. So instead of the somewhat slow clock of Batter Skull or the swords being equipped onto other creatures, Calder Complete, you know, 5-5, five, five, Haste, Indestructible, all that good stuff. And so people have been wanting to test that. Our goal today was to test these waters with these latest sort of Blade-style decks, or at least Living Weapon-style decks. None of those silly hammers, like Dave was saying. We have this history out of the way. Let's maybe get into some decks. And Dave, I know you had some thoughts about the decks that we tested this week. Yeah. I mean, I think that we should just talk about each one what we did. So, like I said, uh, I didn't really play a control deck. I didn't really play a Stoneforge deck that had blade that was a blade deck at all. The deck that I played was basically black white artifact synergy almost nettle cyst dot deck it was a full play set of nettle cysts and cranial plating as the only targets that you could that you could search up with stoneforge mystic uh leaned really hard into artifact synergies heavy discard stuff from playing thought seas and also tide hollow sculler which is an mm-hmm. artifact whoa for early hand destruction i a- always forget it's an artifact Aether- artifact zombie yeah artifact zombie aether sworn canonist was in this deck and uh, also a few other things like Shadow Spear, Pithing Needle, like your kind of Urza Saga package, because this was a deck that was all about artifact synergies and making big constructs with, with Saga. This deck I picked up was a 4-0 prelim deck from about a week ago, piloted by MTGO player Talisker. MTGO user. Yeah. Stan, what kind of deck did you, you look at? I played an Esper Stoneblade deck, so this one was a little bit more mid-rangey, more of a could like look like it had some of the trappings of a control deck, though it wasn't based on counter magic. Um, instead, this is Thoughtseize, Inquisition, Fatal Push, Prismatic Ending as kind of your control package. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the other things that really drew me into this deck was that it was running a couple main deck on Shadow Slayers. Yeah. Whoa. So I was curious to see how that might be able to benefit a Stoneblade package to see if I could ever get deck onto minus six and, you know, <laughs> play an artifact for my hand or graveyard. Yeah, I don't even know what the minus six does. I'll have to look at that card. I played a Grief, Ephemerate, Reanimator, Blade, 
deck that's been making the rounds. It keeps showing up uh, in maybe some, I think, some prelims and some leagues. And it's trying to staple two different strategies together using grief and hand disruption to maybe make the opponent have some early game stumbles. It gains value from Stoneforge Mystic, from Ephemerate. Maybe it can just cheese a win by quickly reanimating uh, one of the great new non-legendary creatures from Modern Horizons 2, and more on that later. What I think is interesting, though, here is I feel like none of the decks we're talking about are, are like Stoneforge Mystic build-arounds, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't seem like any of these the decks are that are running Stoneforge are Stoneforge Mystic Builder. And it's like, it's not, it's often not the best card in the deck. And it's also not even plan a, I would say in, in the decks, as far as the way, the way that they're really looking to, to go. Although stands might be an exception, but I just felt like as I looked at the list, a lot of times Stoneforge is just like a great kind of plan B that you can include in a deck that's trying to do something else. Or in the case of Shane's deck, you can have a, it plan a one and plan a two kind of yeah it's interesting too that like we're we're finally to the place where there's not just the stoneforge package of like hey you play four stoneforge you play a batter skull and you play like sort of fire and ice yeah yeah and maybe true. sideboard like another color hoser or something like that like stoneforge is now like an equipment tutor that sometimes has some cool blades along for the ride too i wonder if you know the quality of equipment just keeps getting better too you know, even in corsets that print Colossal Hammer, you know, <laughs> we have like, we have killer equipment coming in, you know, deck being printed for decks that are meant to be aggressive. And then you have things like Nettle Cyst and Cauldra Complete, which are clearly being printed for more mid-rangey Stoneforge style decks. Whether or not every Nettle Cyst deck is a Stoneforge deck, I think is, you know, irrelevant, but... I, I wonder if Stoneforge is the type of card that's always on the cusp of being like really good, even for moments in time, because we're just going to continue to get potentially powerful equipments that she can utilize and, and we can metagame with. Yeah, totally think that makes sense. All right, should we go? Should we go deep on some of these decks? Yeah. Okay. Well, on Who's our first? on our Stoneblade episode 2021, why don't we start with a deck that is Stone No Blades? I'll go. I'll go first. <laughs> stone equipment. <clears throat> stone equipment. Stone. Stone cyst. Um, yeah. So I, I misspoke a moment ago. So the deck that I played was was piloted by Talisker, but it's an eighth place list from a challenge. I said it was a four zero from a prelim. I, I got my wires crossed there. So here's what the deck is. I think it's super interesting. It's. I'm just going to read out the deck list really quickly. So four Esper Sentinel, three Aethersworn Canonist, three Ingenious Smith. Four t- Stoneforge Mystic and four Tide Hollow Sculler is the creature package. One card I want to read really quickly, just because maybe people haven't seen it lately, is Aethersworn Canonist, mm-hmm. which is a 2-2 for a generic and a white. It was in one of the Alara sets originally. I forget which one it was originally printed in. And it says, each player who has cast a non-artifact spell this turn can't cast additional non-artifact spells. So it's sort of like a rule of law for things that aren't artifacts, which is pretty pretty interesting on a bear. It, it used to see some play in kind of hate bear strategies. Back in the day, it used to see play as a hate card against Storm sometimes mm-hmm. too. But it turned out to be pretty cool on this deck. Definitely disrupted some of my opponents. Then for spells, I have four Thoughtseize in this deck. And then in the artifact package, 
two welding jar, one pithing needle, four portable hole, one relic of progenitus, one shadow spear, one spring leaf drum, one cranial plating, and four nettle cyst. As I mentioned, the only targets for Stoneforge Mystic are Shadow Spear, Cranial Plating, and Nettle Cyst. You're basically getting Nettle Cyst every single time you get you want Stoneforge Mystic, although there's a couple times where Cranial Plating and its instant speed equipability comes in really handy, and also um, Shadow Spear comes in handy to go and get for Trample, and occasionally Lifelink. And then the lands are actually pretty interesting in this deck, too. As you can imagine, it's a black-white mana base. But there's also four Inkmoth Nexus in here, four Urza Saga as well. And I really think that Urza Saga is kind of the focus of this deck because this deck even has four Goldmire Bridge. And in case you haven't played with these before, this is the tapped artifact dual land from Modern Horizons 2. Came in super handy at pumping up the size of your constructs, making your nettle cysts bigger, and other things like that. Just... um just a cool card. You do have to play around the fact that it comes into play tapped, but I thought it was good, useful, everything like that as well. Um, so what do you guys think about this deck? Man, this mana base. It's a little rough. I'll tell you the roughest part about this mana base is Tide Hollow Sculler was often tricky to get out on turn two every time when I really when I really, really wanted it. I mean you have you have eleven untapped black white sources total. Yep. And that is pretty sketch to you know, to always have mana for your Thoughtseize, to have mana for your Esper Sentinel. To, uh, I think it's, if you count the Goldmire Bridge, if you're not really relying on playing a, a turn one play, it's a little bit better. But I'm curious about the tension between the artifact land, doing the pumping and providing the artifact synergy, versus just playing another untapped black-white source, or just having you know, some kind of access to that. Yeah. I'm not convinced either way. I mean, I felt like it was nice to have the extra artifact bump because you're still reliant on cards that are uh, plus X plus X based on the number of artifacts you have. And this is just a free way to get it to happen. Um, so I don't know, but there were definitely a couple times where I was like, I really want to be able to cast Tide Hollow Scholar and I can't. And the other thing is trying to decide if you're going to cast Asper Sentinel or Thoughtseize on turn one is often kind of tough to think about like i think you it especially if you're in the dark if you don't know what you're playing against first um i guess you would generally go thought seize there but boy really want to get those cards off of vesper sentinel as often and as early as you can because <laughs> that card really impressed me playing this deck um you know I, there are a lot of cards that i thought were really cool in here but the two things that impressed me the most in this deck i guess were just urza saga because really, I think this is an Urza Saga deck above everything else. And then doubling down on con constructs, basically, with Nettle Cyst is kind of what this deck is. It's like, we're just making constructs all the time. We're going to attack with it. And I had lots of plays where I was just like, oh, I'm going to turn four, have two, four, four, two, two five fives or something yeah. like that, and just swing in with one of them. Like That was kind of where this, this breaks up. Is this your first uh, Saga deck, Dave? It is. Yeah. Do we have any quick tips for playing with Saga? I don't know if I know the best way. It's, it's definitely one of those skill testing cards and whether or not you make a construct, if you use it for mana, if you use the mana that goes into making a construct into playing to the board. Like there's a lot of tension there. And how early you play the saga? Like is it a turn two play? Is it a turn four play? Because you want to be able to keep 
playing your disruptive spells like Tide Hollow Sculler, like Stoneforge Mystic, and sort of use Saga as your long game card. But sometimes it can just be so explosive that you want to do it early. I basically thought of it as my turn two play in this deck, because I think this deck is almost in on Saga first, and then Stoneforge is your later game plan. Where, you know, if you have to with later on, you'll go get a Nettle Cyst with your Stoneforge and then play it and attach it to something. Or you'll dig something up with Ingenious Smith. I mean, the thing that's cool about Ingenious Smith, of course, is that there's so many artif- artifacts in here that you're getting almost all of your creatures. You know, you're getting a, a whole bunch of other things from your artifact suite. Um, so I think that those things later in the game helped, but just go, pushing all in on an early saga seemed like the best way to go to me in a, in a bunch of different games that I played. Yeah, because one of the things that I've experienced in playing Hammer, which of course features for Saga, is the tension I was mentioning earlier, which is like, wh- what is, what's my ga- plan A versus my plan B here? And frequently, it's not using my mana to make constructs because I need to be getting hammers on things. But then other times, it's like, well, how are you going to beat me continuing to make constructs, get hammers out of my deck once it pops on chapter three. So Saga is just a flexible card. And I think we've come to realize like its its place or its power level is not as busted as people said. And I think, I remember uh, Brian Artificer uh, in our Slack, of, now of Discord. This, yeah, the Serum Visions podcast. Yeah, the Serum Visions podcast was, was pretty strong and made good arguments in terms of saga is not broken y'all because even though it does a lot for a little it's still expensive mm-hmm. and it's 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 a tempo negative play sometimes you have to pump a lot of mana into it um the eventuality can be really good but it certainly is a, a, a tempo question of when you're using it and how you're using it sure i mean the one thing i'd say real quick about saga is if you want to keep mana parity the the trick that I found is that you just search when you get to the search trigger, you just search up spring leaf drum, right? Yeah, that's that's clutch. So then you're just kind of like, okay, I'm gonna make a construct on turn three, then I'm gonna make a construct on turn four, play a land, use my mana, get spring leaf drum, play another two mana threat of some kind. So you have these like massive turn turn fours because of because of that sometimes, which is pretty interesting. I don't know if I think the card is broken, but I do think it's very good and very uh, pervasive. I guess, let's say, even as decks kind of dis- come and go that really focus on it. Quick question, Dave. Yeah. How how did you do with this deck? You know what? I actually felt like I did pretty good with this deck uh, at first. <laughs> so 2-3. <laughs> so <two, three. laughs> a 2-0 uh, into a 2-3. So it was, uh, it was actually a 2-0 into a 3-2. Okay. But what happened was, um, so first match I played Green Tron, and the thing that was nice with uh, with this against Tron was uh, drawing some extra cards, being able to Thoughtseize and Tide Hollow Sculler away their payoffs, of course, so that you know they can do whatever they want to do with getting their mana up. But I'm taking away all the cards they're trying to ramp to. It was, I think, it was pretty good in that matchup. Um, Portable Hole is a card that like I really, really wanted to love, but there were so many places where I felt like I couldn't actually cast Portable Hole, and just Tron playing against a bunch of big mana decks is kind of like the epitome of that happening. So I played Green Tron, and I beat them in two, and then I played Blue Tron <laughs> and beat them in two, and that one was much more of a like Urza Saga kind of beatdown matchup where um, 
I don't remember the big the big play that I had there, but um that was seemed like I was going away. The the match that really stuck with me is that going 2-0, uh going in my third match, I was like, all right, well I'm gonna hop in the Discord and stream this for everybody in the nation. And so I did a match against uh Amula Titan in, uh, in the Discord. And it was it was a heartbreaker match where I uh, lost game one to a bunch of allocate triggers, one game two to a whole with a whole bunch of hand disruption, and then game three had them down with a whole bunch of hand disruption again. They had no cards in hand. They didn't really have any payoffs. And I um they top decked and engineered explosives with four lands on the battlefield against me yeah. when I had a bunch of two CMC cards and they mm-hmm. just destroyed me, just blew me out from there because I had two two primeval titans under tide hollow scholars so i we were talking on the chat and i was like i think i win unless they top deck an engineer explosives this turn and then they yeah. take their turn and they're like engineer explosives and i was like ah! you know uh, it's, you know it's it's why you play the cards but you're yeah. still sad what happens against you it was a bummer for sure so i was i was 2-1 and then i won a th- the fourth match and i lost my fifth match against aldrazi tron i don't remember what the fourth match was it was pretty late at night but I felt like the deck was really kind of humming at the beginning. And then as I got deeper into it, I was like, well, you know, I don't really have a good plan against Eldrazi Tron. I felt like I had a decent plan against anything that's really payoff based, but I didn't play against any super aggro decks. And I feel like super aggro decks probably would just stop me with with this deck. Although I do have four hmm. portable hole, which, which is nice. And I make giant things pretty fast. So I could be wrong about that. Yeah, but so I, I got a three. Such a shadow spear. Like I feel like shadow yeah. spear is, is so good against aggro decks. It, it almost is your batter skull in this strategy. Yeah, but I think that some of the things that we talked about kind of like, um, you know, rang true for me here. One is the mana base is kind of awkward sometimes. Another one is that the clock is like not super fast. And so yeah. even though you're making off. yeah, you're making a bunch of big contracts sometimes if they deal with the first couple ones and then you got to go on to the next thing, then they can really slow you down. So I know that Shadow Spear is supposed to help with that. I think that I probably should have aggressively gotten Shadow Spear more often to give things trample so mm-hmm. that I could close through say, you know, my Titan opponent kept playing Arboreal Graziers and that would just buy them a turn and then right. I would attack in and would buy them a turn. And so if I had something with trample, it would have helped close that gap a little bit more quickly, I think. But this deck is, even though it makes a bunch of big creatures really fast, it's not the fastest thing in the world, even when you get that done. Um, So I'd say that it felt pretty solid, and the synergy felt really, really good, where you're like, I'm going to have giant constructs. But it didn't feel like, uh, you know, you, how when you sometimes when you play a deck and you're like, wow, I feel like I'm playing a different game from my opponent. Yeah. Like, this, this felt very much like the same speed or a little slower than the rest of the format. Dave, did you have any much chance to play former modern all-star edge champion out of the board? I brought it in a couple of times, but I I don't know if I brought it in at the right times. I think that that is your real, like, another one of your aggro cards that you want to bring in there. Because, like, you don't really want to play Tide Hollow Sculler against, you know, a deck that can just lightning bolt it and get their card back. No. So I think that bringing in edge champion there, you know, you pretty much have Metalcraft all the time. And so bringing in S champion, I think is pretty good in those cases. The, the other thing I would say is that dispatch was actually pretty good, which is just straight up, you know, exile a creature because I had metal craft all the time. And also fragmentize was not bad as well as a way to be able to kill an Urza saga 
or an artifact for a single mana. It actually came in pretty handy here and there um, as far as things go. Those are all cards that were in the board. Did you feel like the Stoneforge package, which I guess is just four Stoneforges and then like Nettle Assist and Shadow Spear, Cranial Planning, do you think Stoneforge elevated this deck? Or could this be even somehow more all in on Urza Saga and trying to play more of an artifact deck rather than like counting on equipment to maybe help close? Could it be Steel Shaper's gift? <laughs> so here's the thing that I think is really interesting about this is that, yeah, I think Stoneforge Mystic could theoretically have been Steel Shaper's gift, right? But with Stoneforge Mystic, you still get a creature out of mm-hmm. it, which is kind of nice. It's that you can equip a piece of equipment too if you have to, and also um, being able to drop certain pieces of equipment at instant speed or to be able to up your artifact counts or, you know, cheat on mana and things like that is nice. I think the thing that this deck really does, though, that's interesting compared to the ones that that run Calder Complete, because if you notice, this deck has no Calder Complete in the 75, like we said, is that it's not going to get destroyed if, if my game plan involves me getting a big card with Stoneforge Mystic and then having my Stoneforge Mystic killed. So I I really, mm-hmm. in this deck, don't care if someone kills Stoneforge Mystic after I get my card, right? It's all, So I think that from a card economy perspective, that's pretty good actually, because if people kill it, I'm like, sure, I'll just play Nettle Cyst on the next turn. It's fine. Instead of dropping it for two mana, I just pay three mana for it. No big deal. And that's what I thought was really interesting about this design, to be honest. Um, you mentioned that you weren't necessarily thrilled with portable hole and, and it just kind of felt awkward to the gameplay those are four slots why not just make those cauldrons and batter skulls and swords play the exact same deck just take out your portable holes because i don't want the mana cost to be that much that's that's what what i think is big is that i don't think you want cauldra uh, i i feel like actually this take on a on a stoneforge mystic package felt more appropriate for the metagame right now to me than one again like i said where you're relying on expensive cards that you might have a hard time getting up to the mana for you know because i just get to like play so many different cards and activate urza saga and then drop a stoneforge mystic and then i can play the target and i'm never worried about having it killed exactly so it's tough i mean i think that of course part of the reason i didn't think portable hole was that good was because i played against Green Tron, Tron. <laughs> Blue Tron, Eldrazi Tron, and and Amulet Titan. You know, and Portable Hole is great against Amulet Titan, actually, if you really think about it, because it gets rid of Amulet as well, which is very yeah. helpful. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I, I liked this deck. I might give it another shot. It really kind of, in a weird way, reminded me of the old Eldrazi and Taxes lists that are kind of like, mm. I have a lot of disrupt, and maybe that's because of Tide Hollow Sculler is being it. It's like, I have a lot of hand disruption, but the hand disruption is kind of fragile, and so I have to think really hard about what I'm going to take. But then mm. also, my deck can put out threats, but it's not like that fast. And so you can get outpaced in the mid-game, sort of, even though you're sort of a mid-range deck. But the artifact synergy was so strong that i kind of feel like at least that theme really came in and was pretty was pretty cool and you know i i I have a place out of urza saga so i was i was thrilled to see to finally get a chance to play a bunch of urza saga in one of the decks that like is maybe less known for these so i might sleeve this up and take it to like an fnm if i was Mm -hmm. to ever go to an fnm in the the near future with all your free friday nights (laughs) with all my free time and other things going on because it was fun. It was fun to play, really. Well, that's, that's not what matters, that, Dave. That's key. Yeah. 
and I did decent. I got a burrito. That's all good. I opened a terrible <laughs> card in the in the treasure chest and I move on with my life. You know, it's fine. But Stan, let's talk about something that's a little bit more along the lines of the old school Stoneforge, the way that most people think about playing Stoneforge. For sure. So it's got it's got all your favorite colors. Well, it's got <laughs> two of my favorite colors. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, most of my experience playing Stoneforge is either in, in Just Guy or Azorius Blade. Stan, 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 Stan. Before we before we get into this deck, you mentioned it has two of your favorite colors. I just realized you're not really a, a black mage, are you? I, you know, I own a lot of magic cards. I you try play, playing. I try playing all five. You know, like I've always appreciated Death Shadow. Never got good with it. I, I own. Basically all of this deck except for like Dacons and Vindicates. You got some Dothies? I have a playset of Dothie, yes. My man. So like, you know, I, I I like playing black. I've just never found a black deck that really jived with me. Um Yeah. And and that was part of why I even picked the strategy is A, it felt familiar, right? It felt like an offshoot of the Azorius or or maybe just Guy Stone Forge decks that I played in the past. And B this um, seemed like a, a good way to play with Dothy and some other really proactive black cards like Thoughtseize and Inquisition that I thought might be able to like give me an edge in the metagame. Um, Kaya's Guile is in the main and Vindicate. Two cards that I think are pretty good right now. Vindicate being able to literally tag anything. Kaya's Guile being good against like Murktide decks or you know the occasional other graveyard strategy. You know, I was just, like I said, I was really curious about Dacon, Shadow Slayer. It's like a budget Mythic Planeswalker from MH2. Let's see if it's actually any good. Um, I will say, I didn't do very well in my league. And I think one of the principal differences between this Esper strategy and some of the other Stoneplate decks that I tend to have more experience with is that this is super proactive. It doesn't really yeah. play reactively ever. There's, there isn't a single counterspell in the 75, except for a couple ceremonious rejections on the side. Tell us a little bit about how this deck is built. Yeah, th- that's a good question, Shane. So, 10 creatures, 4 Dothy, th- only 3 Stoneforge, and then also has 3 Sanctifier and Vec. Okay. We have 6 Planeswalkers, um, 3 Teferi, Time Ravelers, 1 Kaya Orzov Usurper, which is a card, as you know, is very near and dear to my heart for no real reason, except I just think she's cool. A cool 3-mana walker. It was and one of our couple- first uh, one of our first spoiler episodes where we talked about three mana walkers being under a lot of consideration for modern, and then they printed like four of them in the next few sets. Oh yeah, yeah, and one of them was Dovin Bond, <laughs> Stan's favorite. That's right. Yeah, so we got two two Dakon, Akaya, and three Teferi. and then you know your Stoneforge package is sort of Fire and Ice, Batter Skull, and Cauldra, twenty four lands, and then seventeen spells. One of those spells. It's Lingering Souls. Ooh. So before we get too deep into the spells themselves, because like I think you kind of gave the outline of that whole package already. What do you think what do you think Dacon is trying to bring to this deck on? Yeah, so l- let's read Dacon. Okay. He's he's a little interesting and and I kind of misplayed with him myself just because I didn't fully understand everything that he was about. But he's a three-mana walker with zero loyalty, but when he ETBs, he comes down with loyalty equal to the number of lands you control. So he kind of rewards you for playing him late. And I really think that he's the type of walker that can help you manage the long game because his plus two is surveil two. So Mm -hmm. A, you're filtering your hand. Minus three is exile target creature. And then he has minus six, put an artifact card from your hand or graveyard onto the battlefield. 
Dave, imagine this walker with Surveil 2 in a deck running white like five years ago. Would you have one Lingering Souls or would you have four? Oh, yeah. Great point. Wow, four yep. Lingering Souls. How the mighty have yeah, fallen. Right? I, yeah. I mean, it's Ugh. it's interesting that Dacon is in, sort of like a backup Stoneforge for these expensive targets in a way because it lets you cheat them into play for a low mana cost, but it doesn't do anything as far as searching them goes. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting kind of thing there. But of course the other thing that goes with it is that it can just straight up kill a creature, which is a nice, a nice fallback as well, I guess. Um, what did you, what was your impression of playing this card? I think that he's a tricky walker in a difficult deck and only one league is not enough to figure out exactly the optimal way to use all of your resources. And the fact that his static is what determines how many loyalty he comes down with was actually something that you have to be keenly aware of when you're playing him and, and really thinking about how you're going to use him. And if you're not paying close enough attention, you'll just like he'll die immediately or on the crackback. While I do think that he could be pretty good at managing that long game, he never really felt like a bomb. You know, plus one to surveil two is not drawing a card. And with the exception of your one Lingering Souls, you don't really have a ton to do with the graveyard. Yeah, that's kind of like an issue I'm seeing is like just the, the plus doesn't synergize with anything. Yeah, yeah. So I think that he could be replaced. <laughs> He'd be replaced. More wow. Lingering Souls. Yeah. We put one Lingering Souls in and, and the fourth Stone Forge and just kind of go back. Maybe. Kind of. yeah. Or, you know, maybe find room for some counter spells. Liliana. Yeah. More Kayas. Oh, now you're talking. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, this deck reads like it wants to be a control deck, but then it doesn't really have cards that let you control the game other than removal, right? Like, it, there's not, there's no right. counter spells. There's no, you know, I guess there's a couple dams in the sideboard as far as wraths go, but um, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, those of those 17 spells, I'm not going to read actual counts but we're looking at fatal push inquisition prismatic ending thought sees esper charm mm -hmm. which is not a good card <laughs> oh no but people a, are gonna send us letters please send them send them to shane uh, it's always a two for one your favorite yeah that that's true i would rather play archmage's charm is is the answer though it's got only one kyle's guile which i think it could afford more of just because kyle's guile is both a reactive spell that can help control certain game states, but it can also give you a threat or can even like cushion your life total some, sometimes. Um, Lingering Souls and Vindicate. Vindicate, that's an awesome card. Just being able to blow up opponents' lands, being able to blow up anything. I never felt bad drawing Vindicates, and the fact that it only runs three, I think is a concession to it being three CMC. Mm -hmm. But you could maybe, maybe even be correct to run four of them. So what was playing this deck like then, Stan? Hard and frustrating. Um, I, I think there's a little bit of tension when you want to figure out if you're supposed to play proactively with some of your hand disruption um, and when you're supposed to actually lay down threats. Because you don't have ways to really protect Stoneforge unless you're able to snipe a removal spell from an opponent's hand on turn one or, or any turn before you cast your Stoneforge. And I think that there's, you know, situations where Dothy and Sanctifier and Vec are just bomb cards for certain matchups you know like sanctifier against a rakdos deck is insane and she just wins on her own dothy against any deck that like cares about his graveyard a little bit i think is also 
fantastic. But if you don't have ways to protect some of these threats, they sort of just felt like two drops that are waiting to get destroyed by practically any removal spell. Yeah, and it's tough because there's only 10 creatures here, so you, your threats are kind of at a premium. And so you uh, you got to keep an eye out. Yeah, I mean, you can say that there's 12 creatures because of Batterskull and Cauldra. Um, and, and of our 24 lands, one of those lands is a Castle Ardenvale. So, you know, eventually you're, you're, making, you're making some creatures there. Some 1-1s. Are you? Definitely Stan, are, are you surviving some, some long enough some to do that? guys. Yeah, you guys, you're firing up your Keldoran outpost and seeing how it goes? I mean, sure, yeah. I, I will say, like, Castle Ardenvale was relevant in one of the games that I played. I had a bad league. I went 0-4 drop, and it was tight here and there. And there were a couple times when I was like, I really love these Lingering Souls. I wish I had more than just the one, because these four flyers are going to win me this game. And then eventually they get picked off or blocked by um, griefs, not griefs. Blocked by endurance, endurances. Yeah, I think that maybe this is a stand issue, but I think that Stoneforge is much better in a mid range control deck where she is surrounded by protection spells and yeah, and where you're playing a control deck that uses her to finish. Um, if you want to play her in a more proactive deck, I think she's great in Hammer, where she serves the plan, but she's not necessarily central to that plan. Yeah, this is how I feel about the deck I was playing, too, for what it's worth. Right, and this is how I... This is a... Uh, <laughs> spoiler, this is how I feel about the deck I was playing, and I think we can talk about this as you know, when we summarize, but I think this is just a consequence of Orzhov Blade decks, which is fundamentally the type of strategy we're all, we all ran this week. Yeah. Uh, mine had no blades. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yours just right. had, like, uh, cysts. Yeah, which you should check that out, man. <laughs> yeah, and then and my nettles. <laughs> so yeah, I, like I said, I think this deck is is more challenging than I gave it credit for, and I was perhaps naive to think I've played Stoneblade in the past. I can just load this up in a league, and I'll know what to do. I've played Thought Seasons before. How hard can it be to play Thought Seasons in a Stoneforge deck? But there's a lot of nuances in, in figuring out how to actually sequence your threats with your disruption, with your proactive disruption. That, um. You know, these decks have been 5-0-ing. Um, I think they've been appearing in, in top 32s periodically, so there's something to them. And maybe part of that has to do with trying to get lucky with your um, hate bears and making sure that they do line up with the right environment overall, that perhaps there's an Esper Blade deck that you can play where your creature suite is a little bit more tuned to a specific environment or uh, a modern challenge, an expected modern challenge. Because... You know, I played against Mill as, as just one of my matchups, and I just felt like I couldn't do anything. Like, because I yeah. didn't have a one of Kai's Guile or, or, you know, a random Eldrazi in the side, it was just like, well, I guess I'm going to lose really quickly to Mill. And I did. No counter spells. That None. Yeah. Causes and maybe too. Mill is just really, really good. I mean, I, I think I, it I, is for a side note, but. Yeah, as, as my side note, two crabs is the new two amulets like i think if, if a mill player is able to get two crabs on the board by turn two it's like so scary oh yeah can't fetch real scary yeah can't do anything if they just hit land drops and some of those lands are fetches it's it's game over all right so you give this one a, a heave stan <sighs> yeah i mean note to stan in the past if there's like <laughs> if, if some radio frequencies get to me a week ago just play Jeskai for my sake. I, d I don't think this deck jived with me. 
but you know, guys, I'm I'm human. I've got a lot on my mind right now. I'm trying to <laughs> like prepare the youth of the world to be future leaders and prepare the world society. for your future youth. So yeah, uh, right on, man. Well, good attempt. <laughs> I tried. I tried. So we had two kind of courses. So our challenges were the beginning course of the meal, and now we had kind of like two appetizers. And just Shane, I know you're going to bring this main <laughs> course to life because there is one really interesting Stoneforge deck that's been floating around the last few weeks that's really um, kind of a weird grafting of two different game plans together. And you were really excited to play this deck. Yeah, yeah. But you know what happens when I get excited? Uh, reality hits. Um, so yeah, what I played, as I mentioned earlier on, was like this sort of Grief Blade reanimator deck. I kind of forget where I found it. I think it was just sort of like on the hunt for these various Orzov reanimator strategies that have been uh, popping up here and there. And I came across this one and I thought, you know what? Why not? Buddy, this deck was having a moment like over the last week or two. It was definitely the talk of the town, I think, for for a little while. Yeah. Um, The general concept of this deck, as far as I can tell at least, I didn't make it, is to present multiple angles of attack in the same disruptive shell. Two great tastes together at last. By blending an Orzov Stoneblade shell that has uh, Stoneforge, Grief, Ephemerate, Thoughtseize, Prismatic Ending, some swords, uh, along with the reanimator package of Unmarked Grave, Persist, Priest of Fell Rites, and then a few powerful non-legendaries in Ashen Rider, Sarah's Emissary, Archon of Cruelty, the deck is offering the potential of this like disruptive deck that can present a clock in the form of Calder Complete or Batter Skull, or maybe reanimate something busted, or maybe just like be blinking or reanimating some griefs to strip your opponent's hand. And so when I was looking at this deck, my initial question was how well is it going to succeed at both of these strategies? while being expert in none. Because it's not a true animator deck. It doesn't have like full play sets of Archon of Cruelty. It doesn't have four Priest of Fell Rites or Grief or Thoughtseize even. And it's not this true Orzhov midrange deck with things like Solitude and Dothy Voidwalker and Vindicate, Fatal Push, things like that. And so can a deck like this really split the difference and offer the best of both worlds? And that was my mission, gentlemen, Mm -hmm. to find out. And what did you find out? Be honest. Be honest. Tell us honestly. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know I what think, I found I out. There's some, there's, some fun, there's some fundamental flaws uh, in the way that this deck is, I think, designed and built. But that sounds really rude to the people who are winning with it and to the, the people who are originating the strategy. And it's certainly possible that I'm misplaying, uh, more possible than not. But I'll get into kind of what I mean by that. And... And so I think that the games where the deck did feel good involved the reanimator side of the deck and not this sort of fair mid-range strategy that we've been talking about. I think like in, we've been talking about none of us really played kind of just straight up Orzov blade style decks, but we're kind of getting at what is Orzov typically trying to do when it's playing its, its normal game. One of the big strategies that was given support in Horizons 2 was reanimator. So we have cards like Unmarked Grave, one of the black, search your library for a non-legendary creature, put it in your graveyard. Uh, Persist, also one of the black, allows you to return 
that non-legendary creature from your graveyard to the battlefield, albeit with a minus one, minus one counter on it. And so along with those two cards, um, these powerful and expensive non-legendary creatures were printed as well, primarily Archon of Cruelty and Sarah's Emissary. Archon of Cruelty, Cruelty, six black black for a six, six flyer when an ETBs or attacks target opponent sacrifices a creature or a planeswalker discards a card and loses three life. You get to draw a card and gain three life. Pretty cool. Sarah's emissary four white, white, white for a seven, seven flyer. When she ETBs choose a card type you and creatures you control have protection from the chosen card type. So the games that the deck felt the most conclusively kind of great were against creature decks with minimal or like no hand or stack interaction. And where I had like a nut draw or a pretty quick draw into unmarked grave and persisting uh, something back. That was awesome out of the graveyard. Um, You know, Archon interestingly seems to get the most notice, but it was Sarah's emissary. That was the more conclusive door slammer for me, like against decks like Eldrazi Tron or elves, which I faced in a league getting Sarah's Sarah's Emissary and naming Creature was enough to just cement that win. Like, they have so few tools, if any, to stop Sarah's Emissary, especially with the clock that she's presenting. I played, like, 13 or so matches with this deck, and I was never in a position where getting Archon of Cruelty seemed like the best choice. Yeah, when when you were reading the card out, I was just sitting here once again going, why are people excited to reanimate this card? Right. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I totally understand. Like, I mean, I think that there's a couple cool things that it does, but. Yeah, like it's, I was never in a position where like I was so far ahead that I felt like Archon of Cruelty was the best choice. Like maybe, I, I always felt like I was maybe kind of on the back foot. Like if I was being overwhelmed with creatures and I needed to lock down the board with Emissary, uh, that was great. But it, it's really weird to live in a world where. Even like an early Archon, it didn't feel like the best option to stick. Like either I was feeling behind and I didn't think that Archon would catch me up or like it's ETB didn't feel strong enough at the time. Like if your opponent has five cards in hand and you're reanimating an Archon, it's like, well, what's is is this thing going to just get killed by a Path to Exile or like a Terminate or an Unholy Heat? Because it's it's a six six even if you don't persist it like if you reanimate it some other way it's still a six six how quickly is this thing going to die am I going to be able to close the game it sort of just felt like uh, Sarah's emissary naming a key a card type was the better answer most of the time and I might have been making mistakes where like I should have just relied on our kind of cruelty like let's not live in a world where they always have it let's live in a world where I'm getting three, it's a, you know, six point life Delta and they're discarding a card. And every time I attack with this thing, it's, it hap- it's happening again. And I'm drawing cards. Like maybe that was a better choice sometimes, but it never felt like it to me. Yeah. I guess the fact that it effectively swings for nine in the air yeah. is pretty good. That's a good clock. Yeah. What's really hilarious or perhaps sad is like the persisted Sarah's emissary didn't always get the job done for me either because of unholy heat, which is just a truly game changing card for the format. Like if I'm up against a, let's you know, some multicolor deck with creatures and I'm like, well, I better name creatures or else I'm not going to win this game. And it comes back as a six, six when it's persisted. 
then zap unholy heat for a single red mana and they just continue to beat down with their creatures and i'm dead so that felt pretty bad that being said there were games when the disruptive angle of the deck the non-reanimator side of it allowed me to play like a longer game and i'm keeping things like ad nauseum at bay they're not piecing together what they need at least most of the time at least like these busted grief draws where you're evoking it and then you're ephemerating it or you're malachy rebirthing it certainly does hamstring those combo combo style decks but none of you had grief in your decks right no no i was surprised that it so it wasn't around as much as everybody thought it was going to be at the beginning of the, this format, you know, everybody, every, a lot of the early decks were the like grief plus stone blade package. And then they kind of went away. Yeah. I mean, I'll just talk about my experiences with grief because I did get to do the thing. Like I did the ephemerate, the evoked grief on turn one. I did the Malakir's rebirth of evoked grief on turn one. Everyone was afraid it was going to ruin the format. And I think I still ended up losing those games like 75, 80% of the time. Like, because here's what happens, at least with this deck, is like you're stripping three cards out of someone's hand by turn two. And that seems great. But what that really ends up is that you're attacking on turn three with a three two, which is hardly a good clock. Um, it just gives your opponent plenty of time to draw into all of the good cards that are in their deck. Like they can find their combo pieces because they're so redundant. Now they can do whatever they need to while you are sitting there with a mopey three, two on, you know, that's a, that's swinging in every turn, maybe until they get two blockers down because it does have menace. And meanwhile, you've shredded your hand a little bit. You've, you, this deck seems to mulligan a lot, in my opinion, because sometimes you just are like, well, I have these random cards that don't work together, and I'll get more on, on that later. And it seems like the griefing thing should get you ahead, but it's like it feels like the old disruption without a clock isn't getting the job done adage that we've talked about since like probably the third month of playing of doing this podcast, right? It's like evoking grief is expensive in terms of your cards and it does, you know, it seems like that's card advantage, but the rest of your deck isn't coming together often enough to let you really close the game down. Again, it's this issue with the, the clock that your deck is presenting so often doesn't feel like enough. Yeah. And it's just in this particular color pair, it feels like you just don't quite get there. Although, I mean, we do have three giant clocks in this deck in and then also we have culture complete too so right yeah there are attempts at making it happen here yeah there's attempts for sure but like one of the issues is is like yeah like if i'm if i'm doing the evoking grief thing that's three cards in my opener that i'm down like it's it's grief it's the pitch card and it's the ephemerate which is largely useless after kind of the the turn that you cast it besides the rebound man i i do have to say i don't like ephemerate in decks like this because like it feels like it should be big game, and it feels like you should always have these great targets for ephemerating things, but you often don't. Well, I mean, you don't really care about ephemerating Stoneforge, right? Like, no, because you have you have two targets. Yeah, and it's like okay, well, they're both expensive. I don't know which ones I'm going to want to get anyway. You know, not that, but like if you get one, is the other one really that different? It's it's probably not. And then you know you can ephemerate Archon and Ashen Rider, which are both like reasonable targets for that. Yeah, for sure. And you can, and you can but, ephemerate grief, and that's kind of like all there is to it. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it just, ephemerate felt really dead in my hand. And I guess that's kind of like an issue I, I have with the deck on the whole is when you, when you play a deck that is a kit of parts coming together, when you don't draw slot A for tab A, you know what I mean? Like then you're just like, then tab A is useless. Like just, you have a, you have a, a, a third persist that you draw when you have nothing in your graveyard, you have an, an, uh, when you have an unmarked grave getting something into your yard, but no way to get the card back. You have a priest of fell rights that you can potentially play to the battlefield, but nothing to reanimate it with it if you untap. And that was just the issue with this deck over and over again, or the, the kit of parts that ostensibly were in this deck just felt like they they weren't there for me. And there's no way to filter your draw. There's no way to really get ahead on cards in this deck besides like a singleton uh, Castle Lockthwain, if you have time to be playing that. But uh, I almost never did. The, the issue with presenting a clock, like I mentioned, like we have disruption but no clock, it just comes down to that dual personality nature of the deck. Like the this reanimator package is like, predicated on getting certain specific draws of your deck and they don't have redundancy in them, right? Like I don't have eight unmarked grave effects, right? I don't have eight persist effects necessarily. Like you could sort of call priest of fell rights one, but that has its own issues because it's creature based and not spell based. And unmarked grave is like the easiest way to get that reanimator target in the graveyard because it operates independently of any other card in your hand. Like you don't have to have another piece you just have to cast it and then get some tutor something out of your out of your deck into your graveyard. But it's like the other ways that you have of getting cards in the graveyard, like ostensibly are thoughts using yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. You you could you could use the one of collective brutality with like an escalate clause. You can plus one Liliana, like you've got one Liliana in this deck, um, and discard something you want to reanimate. Like Thoughts using yourself to get a card in the graveyard kind of borders on lunacy because <laughs> the payoff <laughs> isn't quite good enough, huh? It's just like, I mean, it costs you two cards and basically does nothing um, without the reanimation spell in your hand as well. So it's like a three-card combo in your opener, right? And then it opens you up to Graveyard Hate that's running rampant right now. Um, These other options don't feel quite as useless that I mentioned, but it does require you to have the reanimation target, the pitching spell, and then a way to get that card back out of the graveyard to present any kind of reasonable threat to your opponent. And this ostensibly, like you got it earlier, Dave, is like where Stoneforge should be coming in. Like the deck chooses to run three, which I think is probably wrong. Like I think you probably want the full playset, uh, especially because there's some main deck inclusions like a single dam, the really useless feeling on burial rights. Like it's just not cost effective enough. Like I just never got to a place where I wanted to be playing on burial rights. Yeah. Um. Like and so Stoneforge, like you said, Dave has those two targets: Batter Skull, Calder Complete. This should be able to present a clock. It should be able to stabilize a game with Batter Skull, like it always, you know, like it has been trying to do for a few years now. And Calder gets that clock down with games that have low interaction, and it can survive with its indestructibility and things like that. But Stoneforge, to me, still felt like it always has in Modern, which is like it needs to survive. And we're living in a format where uh, creature decks, especially with low creature count, you cannot rely on that unless you have counter magic. Right. Um, You know, if we're relying, like Stan said, if we're relying on stripping the removal from our opponent and 
trusting that they don't draw it. And that is not, in my experience, ever proven reliable and successful. <laughs> like, it's just like, there's a lot of removal. There's a lot of, there's a lot of top decks that can remove it. Um, you don't have a lot of other threats in this deck that your opponent has to remove. So like Stoneforge is just not long for the world once you cast it. Right. A couple quick questions about you playing this deck. How often were you running into graveyard hate? And is it safe to assume that that mostly shuts you down unless you do draw the Stoneforge? There's some options. I mean, like one, yes, you see a lot of graveyard hate. It's all over the place. There's Tormod's Crypts. There's Relic of Progenitus. There's Endurances. There's, you know, it's all over. It runs the gamut of all the things you expect to see and have seen. And what's good about the deck, I think, is that you can get it out of their hand fairly early sometimes. And when it does hit the board, things like Prismatic Ending, things like Fracture, things like Seal of Cleansing do help clean up those those tools. And so it's kind of like the the option to get down a seal and pop it if you need to to make them to make them pop their graveyard hate like the single the single use graveyard hate is more easy to get around of than things like leyline of the void, right? Because leyline of the void is going to require me to get one of my two seals of cleansing, maybe get my one fracture out of the graveyard and cross my fingers. Whereas the one-time use things, you can sort of play around. You can build up a hand that has an unmarked grave and a persist in it. And then once you are able to get that piece of graveyard hate off the battlefield, then you can one turn, just unmarked grave persist and get your card back out. Um, Which is great when it happens, but a lot of times they are presenting the disruption plus clock that is so challenging for me to be doing. And they're winning the game while I'm just struggling to find my my hate my anti hate pieces. What's what's weird about Stoneforge going back to that is that even Calder Complete. I mean, if you, I don't know if you all have played with this card, Stan. I think you have. Mm-hmm. I I weirdly didn't think Calder Complete was that great, even against like non interactive decks, where it's like they don't have any creatures. Like it's weird to say that like a hasty five five with a lot of keywords on turn three, doesn't feel that amazing. Cause it's still like a turn. It's like a four turn clock and modern combo decks have so many ways to be finding ways to kill you in that time span. Like if I'm not, if I'm presenting a, a Calder complete and I'm not backing it up with maybe some more griefing or uh, maybe reanimating some, maybe reanimating something useful out of the graveyard or also adding to my clock, then I'm just going to get living ended or I'm going to get ad or I'm going to any number of combos can get in the way of killing them quickly with a Calder complete. Yeah. I mean, you would think with all this ability to disrupt someone's hand, you'd be able, you'd feel pretty impervious to combo decks. You know what I mean? But yeah, it sounds, it sounds like it's, it always felt like it wasn't quite enough or you were paying too much for the privilege of disrupting their hand so badly. And sometimes they just get it together anyway. Yeah. It's, it's just not like, sometimes it's fine. And sometimes it's, it's definitely getting you there, but I just feel like it's, I wish that I had had the opportunity to play it against creature decks more, but I never had a Calder complete down against like a opposing creature strategy where it's mm-hmm. like you can't attack in because I'm going to be like exiling your stuff when it blocks or something like that because it has first strike and 
uh, I, I'm more when the creature decks are coming down and I try to get my Stoneforge down, they're just zapping it with something. Any number of pieces of removal is taking care of my Stoneforge as they continue to attack in. Because, of course, they're running uh, creature interaction or they're running burn because they're trying to keep the board clear for their creatures to get in. Can I ask one, one more card-specific question? Please do. How important was the other the land side of Malakir Rebirth? Like, how important was just, like, having a, a tapped black land? Right, just, like, having the fail state on, on that card specifically. Because I, oh, I was thinking... That was fine. So I was thinking about what you were saying about Sarah's Emissary coming down as a 6-6. Six, six. And, you know, Malakir Rebirth is this card type that gets reprinted a lot there's like tons of single black instance you know yeah bring something back from the graveyard if it dies bring it back kind of thing yeah and and there's this new one in the D &D set called feign death which is this effect but it comes back with a plus one plus one counter for a single black mana i almost wonder like is the land half of malachir rebirth worth it when you can actually like play a a slightly different version of the deck that makes maybe your griefs hit a little harder if they stick around and can also maybe help protect a Sarah's emissary or even other, or even an archon of cruelty from unholy heat. Yeah, I'm not. I think I'm not sure. I think the best thing that Malachi Rebirth offers you is flexibility. Surprise! Like it's it, it's a 21 land deck, at least the way it's built right now. And then Malachi Rebirth offers a 22nd and 23rd option. And this is a somewhat land hungry deck. I think. Like I frequently want to be double spelling with at least four mana up. And so it's, I think, valuable to have as many land drops as you can hit. And so Malachi Rebirth lets you kind of play a land off-tempo when you need to. Like, okay, I've got enough mana to do what I want this turn. I can Malachi Rebirth, tapped land, play the Malachi Mire or whatever it's called, and get that down. So I think it's it's an important card because of a number of things. One, it kind of it can prevent against certain types of removal. It can allow you to do some blinky shenanigans for grief or even... Like you said, is like it's it's something that maybe can get that seventh point of toughness on your Sarah's emissary, so you can maybe preemptively dodge an unholy heat, like just mm-hmm. get it out of the way already, like when they when they're tapped out or something like that. So there's flexibility there, which is nice. I think it's just summarize the deck, and so we can talk about Stoneforge as we close out. Mm-hmm. I think that the real issue of the deck, and I've, I think I've been banging this drum, is that there's not a lot of consistency here. Yeah, like the cards don't have a lot of individual power. I mean, they, of course they do, but some of them are uncastable, right? Like there's a lot of power in Sarah's Emissary, but she costs seven mana. And so these, and the combo pieces don't have a lot of redundancy at all in the deck. So like you're mulling for reasonable opening hands that do something. And then you're sort of like top decking or like you're hoping to draw one of your four persists in the deck, for instance. Like, And meanwhile, you're just so far behind on tempo frequently of the, what's happening in modern around you that you sort of feel kind of helpless. I haven't had time to test a pure reanimator strategy, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that's what's going to be more consistent in the reanimator end of things, right? Like it has more copies of everything you want to be doing. It has more reanimation targets. Uh, it has more ways to get those reanimation targets in the graveyard. Like reanimator itself is like using bone shards and more copies of collective brutality. It's got four archon of cruelty. So like you have more ways to be getting things in the graveyard, and then you can afford to run things like Knight's Whisper that accelerates your draws, recover from your griefing if you're like doing some grief shenanigans. Like, and these Reanimator decks are then running Stoneforge in the side to offer a juke against Graveyard Hosing, which I think is like a fun concept. I wonder how well it works in reality. But that might be kind of a better way to do it, where it's like, I'm not splitting the difference 
until I have to. And so looking at this deck through that Stoneforge Mystic lens, which is kind of the original goal of this episode, I don't really see how this is the proper home for her. Like blade decks or uh, equipment decks at their core, at least, need to protect Stoneforge in some way so that you're not ending up with a stranded batter skull, with a stranded calder complete rotting in your hand, like yet another piece of like card inefficiency that this I'm already dealing with. And like maybe you're just offering up uh, enough removal targets. Like you're all your like like your deck stand even I think had better targets for removal in uh Sanctifier, in Dothy. Like you can eventually untap with her and stick a good threat because you are have gotten through their early removal issues. And so like this deck just really kind of offers like a little bit too not enough of each world. Mm-hmm. I'm hesitant to tell people this is like how I would approach the modern meta right now. Like if you want to reanimate, reanimate. If you want to Orzhov Stoneblade, Orzhov Stoneblade. And I, I don't think that you're pulling anything over on someone by having both. Because like I think both of them need enough other cards that fit the strategy to make it work. Like if you want to stick a Stoneforge and run away with the game with like a Calder Complete, you're going to need ways to rip apart their hand even more. They're going to need ways to uh, protect it potentially with like uh, counter spells, maybe uh, with, you know, like in a Jeskai strategy or something like that. So I don't know. I don't, it's not my favorite. Wow. Wow. That was a lot. Sean, Sean D, we love you, but we just didn't love the decks we played today. Oh. Oh yeah, so yeah, I went. I, I, I not that I he asked us time. to pick these specific decks, That's but true. yeah, I went. I went one four, uh, one three drop. Those were my. Those were my two leagues. Uh, I had more fun in the tournament practice room where I did play against legitimate decks, but after that, all downhill. Oof. So I'm the winner this week, huh? You are great. So y'all, how are you feeling about Stoneforge right now? Eh. Seems good in Hammer. Yeah, I mean it's just an equipment tutor there, right? Yeah, I, I just, I wonder if, you know, if you're committed to playing Stoneforge, should you just play Hammer? Because that's like the most successful Stoneforge deck we have right now, where it actually adds to that deck in a consistent way that can very frequently lead to you winning, like, the turn after you cast her. But you're you're not playing a Stoneforge deck there. You're playing, like, a redundant equipment tutor effect. But, you know? but, but in all of the decks that we played and talked about, we, you could win never having seen Stoneforge. You know, like, we have all these other packages around it, and she's, like, this alternative plan. But what, you know, what is it, what's the difference between a Stoneblade deck and a deck that just has a Stoneforge package in it, but also gets to do other stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of gets back to the idea that we've talked about, like, the Jeskai deck, where it's like, hey, I've got Ragavan. I've got other must-kill threats, and Stoneforge is just another one of them. Dave, what do you think? You seem perturbed by my hypothetical question. No, I th- I think it's I think it's fine. I mean, I I like the deck that I I think it was an interesting question that you had. That's like, what's the difference between these things? I think we kind of talked about it earlier, which is like there used to be one way to play Stoneforge, kind of, and now there just isn't anymore because there's more targets, there's more places that the card can show up, and so we're getting this different kind of vibe with it. But also at the same time, the card's not as powerful as it used to be. And so I think it's still a really good card in modern, a really good card to have around for people who like certain strategies like this, but I don't think it's going to be dominant anytime soon. I, and I don't think it's going to be the best card in the decks that it's even good in anymore. I think it's going to be just like a good role player. And so most of these decks maybe shouldn't be called Stoneforge decks anymore. They're going to be called other things that happen to have that card in it. 
Hmm. And I think that's okay. You know, that's a, that's kind of a good journey. It's almost a good redemption journey for a card that was banned <laughs> for being too powerful at one point in time or having too many bad memories associated with it, having it come back and be kind of like its own thing for a little bit and now just a player in the format. Just a thing. Are you surprised that we ended up there? I'm surprised, right? It's it's like I I thought it would be like you said earlier, either really good or uh, do nothing. And it somehow found itself into like the tier two, tier three level of modern creatures, or it's just around. Yeah, I I'm not surprised that we got here, and I think that there's a few cards on the modern ban list that are still this same way where most of what modern was at the time that they were banned or the standard was at the time that these cards are, I don't think there's any standard reverberation cards left on the modern ban list anymore, but um, that memory is of a format that was about something else. And modern just isn't really about the things that made, uh, for example, made Stoneforge scary you know, at a certain point in time to have off the ban list, because it's not really close to what that standard format was anymore at all. It's just not. And um, that's okay. Modern's about a different thing. But I do think it's fun that it means that Stoneforge means gets to be a fine card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sweet. Well, sorry, we did not break, we didn't break anything open. <laughs> we didn't explore a, a huge variety of, of Stoneforge decks, but I think what I was more interested in is actually getting at What's the reality of Stoneforge right now, and how can a card go from go from semi broken to semi useless? <laughs> I mean, those are exaggerations on both ends. I think, I, yeah, because I think we would agree it's not useless. No, no, not a, not at all. Right? It's like it's a reliable it tutors, player. It tutors up a hammer. It, yeah, it does some something very strong in a lot of different decks, and it can do different strong things in different decks. Right? Not right. all Stoneforge decks are hammer decks or. Uh, living weapon decks or you know metal cyst piles right so maybe it's just a matter of finding the exact right non-hammer package for her right now or maybe it's just accepting that like hammer is the best thing you can do with stoneforge right now and maybe as other equipment gets printed or maybe other control spells gets printed she can be a more consistent control deck again but like Control is still good right now. They're just not Stoneforge decks, really. And maybe that's because control decks have better threats that they can play at the moment that line up more favorably within the metagame. Yeah, like Crashing Footfalls. Yeah, or Murktide Regent. Murktide Regent, really. But yeah. (laughs) All right, well, that does wrap up this week's show. Thank you again, Sean D, for recommending this super fun topic. We love this card. Do we, between the three of us, do we own 12 Stoneforges? Yes. Oh, yeah. The gentleman's playsets. Yeah, it might be one of the only cards that we all own playsets of. Probably not true, but monkeys, lightning I mean, bolts. Yeah, there's lots. We, we should maybe we can do an episode one day. Blood where, crypts, where we're just comparing our collections. That sounds like a fun one. <laughs> just it's just the sound of like people flipping binders and resleeving cards. If you want to hear that episode where we're just sleeving cards and flipping binders, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Get the latest episodes as soon as they come out basically every Wednesday now. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question, you can reach us at the dive down, all one word on Twitter, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to support our show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. We are now on Discord and it is awesome. We we sometimes stream ourselves playing magic. Our other patrons stream themselves playing magic or even other video games. And it's made the community a whole lot better, I think. So Yeah. Way to go, fam. We on Discord now. Exactly. And don't forget, no regular episode next week. Dave's not going to be on the week after that. Stan's taking a break for a little bit, but we'll be back. You know, things are going to be weird for the next couple of months for us, but we will be here to give you our lukewarm takes. (laughs) And adequate playing. Adequate playing stories and, you know, to help you go to sleep at night with our sonorous voices. That's true. I'm, I've never been more grateful that I can play Magic on my phone. Like, having Arena Mobile is going to be really great so that I can just, like, sneak in some games here and there between giving milk to a baby. Yeah. Or, or like, take extra long bathroom breaks. Those start early, I'll tell you. <laughs> like, I'm, I, yeah. My, <laughs> kid, my kids are six and three now, and I'm always hiding out in the bathroom trying to keep them away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading the paper. <laughs> Leave Dan alone. He's just staring into space. <laughs> All right. Shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring our shenanigans. You can support the dive down while playing Magic Online by signing up for a Mana Traders account using promo code the dive down 2021. All one word, though 2021 is numerical. Get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards with that code. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and yield your blades! Somebody once told me the Stan was gonna roll me. That was a song.